I'm sure that there are some of you here this morning, you take a look at the title to my lesson, and you have no idea what today's lesson's about. Sounds like a law firm, right? We're being represented by moats and beams. Or an a intersection somewhere. Meet me at the corner of moats and beams. But if you know what that means, if you know what we're talking about, then you didn't need the songbook to sing that last song. You've been around long enough to know the words to sowing the seed of the kingdom. And if you're like me and you grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible, you know exactly what we're talking about today. We're talking about moats and beams. So, I beseech thee to tarry with me yet a while longer that they may understand it by and by. This is now the, I think, tenth week that we have been looking at what I'm calling the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I keep trying to impress upon you just how different Jesus' teaching was that day on the hillside. I mean, this is radical stuff that Jesus is sharing. No one had ever heard a rabbi, a teacher, talk about the kinds of things in the kind of manner that Jesus was speaking to the people on the hillside. You know, think about what he's already been sharing with the people. He's challenged them a new way of dealing with their anger. He's challenged them a new way of dealing with sexual temptation. He shared with them new ways to deal with uh, lying and deception. He's brought into question their motives and their priorities. He's sharing all these wonderful new teachings and new strategies. Some pretty amazing promises as well. And as Jesus is teaching, as he is instilling, as he is challenging, I suspect that the same thing started happening in his audience that often happens in our audiences today. Now, human nature hasn't really changed very much over the centuries. And any time we hear a message that's very convicting, we all kind of react uh, in a lot of the same ways. And I suspect that Jesus probably was seeing some of the things that sometimes I see. And you might not realize it, but I can see you when I'm preaching. I, I can see what you're doing and, and where your mind is going, or at least what looks like your mind is going. And I suspect the same thing was happening uh, when Jesus was sharing this wonderful information as well. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. And I suspect someone in the crowd was thinking, boy... I wish my brother-in-law was here. He really needs to hear this message. He is so cynical. And he is, he, he is he, he's so aggravating. He needs to hear this message. Jesus said, don't lust. And I'm sure someone in the crowd was thinking, Ooh, I wonder if old Eli is listening. I bet he thinks Jesus is talking right to him. Probably a little hot under the collar right now because we all know what kind of guy he is. Jesus said, don't deceive others. And someone was probably thinking, man, I wish the lady at the end of the street was here. She needs to hear this lesson. She is so fake. She is so phony. She's so hypocritical. I'm going to send her the CD. <laughs> Anonymously. Because she needs to hear this lesson. Of course, Jesus is far too talented a teacher to allow these people to dismiss his teaching with the notion of, this doesn't apply to me. He's not going to let them get away with the rationalization of, you know, this is for somebody else. 
This isn't for me. So Jesus is about to start stepping on toes. Which means I guess I'm about to start stepping on toes as well. My own included. I heard a story about a, a young couple that moved into a new home and as they're sharing breakfast together one morning, they look out their window and their next door neighbor is putting some clothes out on the line to dry. And the young wife says to her husband, can you believe how dirty that lady's laundry is? Look how dingy and, 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 and dirty looking it is. She must not know how to do laundry. Husband just kind of grunted, didn't say anything. Then every morning during breakfast when their neighbor would put out her laundry on the, on the clothesline, they had the same conversation. The wife would say, I can't believe that anyone would consider those clothes to be clean. Maybe she's not using the right detergent. Now I feel like I should go over and talk to her. You know, tell her how to wash clothes. Husband never said a word. Finally, one morning, they're sitting at the breakfast table and the neighbor is starting to put out wash and, and the lady said, would you look at that? Finally, she has clean clothes on the line. Someone must have told her how to do laundry. I wonder who told her. The husband said, nobody told her. I got up this morning and washed our windows. <laughs> See, Jesus knows the human heart. And Jesus knows that we always see other people through a different window than we see ourselves. See, when I'm talking about myself, I'll say, I'm very firm in my beliefs. But when I'm talking about someone else, I'll say, he is so hard-headed. He is so obstinate. When I'm talking about myself, I'll say, well, I've reconsidered my position. When I'm talking about someone else, I'll say, he's gone back on his word. He's flip-flopped. You know, it just sort of seems to be in our nature to be judgmental. And so in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes it very, very, very clear that we had better be very, very, very careful when it comes to judging other people. And I'm going to warn you right up front as we get into this thing, I'm not talking to your brother-in-law. And Jesus isn't talking to your brother-in-law. And Jesus isn't talking to the guy at the end of the pew, and he's not talking to the lady who lives down the street. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. So let's see what Jesus has to say to, to us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, verse 1 through verse 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. By the way, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 might be the best known and most quoted verse in the Bible by non-believers. Judge not that you be not judged. I mean, everybody knows that verse. Even if you don't know anything about the Bible, you know that verse. There's a couple verses in the Bible that seem like the whole world knows, right? Jesus wept. Everybody knows that. Short, to the point. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Everybody quotes that. And it's not even in the Bible. But mothers still quote it as if it's biblical truth. But everybody knows Judge not that you be not judged. 
In fact, I made this comment in our small group a couple weeks ago. That verse is far and away the most Google-searched verse of the Bible. It's not, the, the second verse, John 3.16, isn't even close. It is the most tweeted verse of the Bible. People love to share, judge not that you be not judged. And I think we all know why. Because I think a lot of people mistakenly assume that Jesus is saying something that he's really not saying. That Jesus is in effect saying, hey, you live your life, let everybody else live theirs. You don't try to impose your thoughts or your beliefs on anyone else, certainly not your moral uh, you know, compass. That's not for you to do. But is that what Jesus is teaching? Is Jesus saying we can never judge anyone or anything? Is Jesus saying we can never really know right from wrong? Well, if that's what he's saying, then it's in contradiction with a whole lot of other scripture. I could have come up with dozens of other uh, uh, verses, but I, I came up with three. 1 Corinthians 5. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now that's a call to be discerning, isn't it? Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone... If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, I can't do that unless I make a judgment about what is sin. 1 Timothy 6, if anyone teaches false doctrines, does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. That sounds like judging. Okay, good. We do get to judge. Awesome. But again, Jesus is saying, be very, very, very careful. Yes, over and over again, Jesus teaches, the Scripture teaches that there is sin. And we need to be able to recognize sin. And we need to be able to address sin. And we need to be able to confront sin. We have to be able to recognize right from wrong. But Jesus knows our hearts. And he knows how easy it is to twist things into ways that, that the Father never intended them to be understood or applied. So here's what I think Jesus is trying to get us to understand. First, I think Jesus is saying it's not our job to judge people. It's just not our job. It's not our responsibility to speak or to, to act with a spirit of blame or condemnation. It's not our job to judge. We don't have the ability, we certainly don't have the authority to be able to judge someone's hearts or someone's motives. Now, understand, Jesus is not saying that we should be indifferent to sin. Absolutely not. Now, he talks about it, all of us have uh, something going on in our lives. Indifference is not what Jesus is advocating. Don't ask, don't tell. That is not what Jesus is advocating here. I think what he is saying, it's not our job to make condemning judgments about other people's motives and other people's hearts. And by the way, this is about as practical as Jesus is ever going to get. Because Jesus is now dealing with something that every single person has an issue with. We might not talk about it. We might not even consciously understand that it's going on. But all of us have these things in our lives. 
All of us have these triggers that cause us to react in some type of judgment. Now, I don't know what your trigger is. They're different for everybody, I guess. Maybe your trigger is someone who doesn't agree with you theologically. And you just, your knee-jerk reaction is, I'm going to judge that person. Maybe your trigger is someone who doesn't agree with you politically. Has anyone noticed we're in the middle of a campaign season here? Every single candidate that I hear says the same thing. From the presidential races right down to the local level. Vote for me because you can't trust the other person. Every candidate saying that. Vote for me because the other candidate is so terrible. So if you take your politics very, very seriously, then you're probably going to judge somebody who doesn't agree with you. Maybe your trigger is someone who has a different lifestyle or makes different choices than you do. Maybe your trigger is someone who roots for a different sports team than you. No, we hate all Gators. We hate all Seminoles. We all have these things that kind of trigger this, uh, this judgmental reaction. But Jesus is saying that a condemning spirit has no place in the kingdom. There's no room for that in the kingdom. So, let me ask you the obvious question, and it's a hard question. How can I be discerning and not be judgmental? Because it's a fine line, and it's a delicate thing. How can I be discerning without being judgmental? Now I want to share with you a thought that actually came from a book written by Gordon Hinckley. He talks about um, ways to deal with someone who needs correcting. There's a couple of different ways that I can be discerning, that I can deal with someone who needs correcting. There's condemnation, there's indifference, and there's advocacy. Let me try to make it personal, and I'm, I want to share an analogy that may or may not work, but it happened to me, so it worked for me. A couple of years ago, Martha and I were living in Tallahassee. I just turned 50, and I went to my doctor for a physical exam. Now, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm, I'm, I'm very healthy. Um, I don't take it for granted. I know how quickly that can change. But, you know, I, I exercise several times a week. Martha will tell you I get plenty of rest. Except for an occasional Moe's burrito or uh, every now and then a Five Guys burgers and fries. I eat pretty well. So I go to my doctor, who is a young woman, by the way, which is weird. But I go to my doctor, and she says, okay, we're going to order this test, this test, this test, and this test. I said, wait a minute, last time I was here, we didn't go through all these tests. She said, well, you're 50 now. Because apparently 50 is the year that the medical society claims that your body starts falling apart. So they order all these tests. We come meet again, and she kind of goes over the results of the tests. And she says, Tim, you're really in pretty good shape for your age. <laughs> Thank you. I, okay. And she went over some things and she said, and, and one other thing, uh, according to your height, you probably could stand to lose a few pounds. So I, you know, I <laughs> sucked my stomach. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, according to your height, you know, like this is going to help. You probably could stand to lose a few pounds. That's how the conversation started. Now, what if my doctor had said, yeah, you need to lose a few pounds because you're fat. Okay? You know it, I know it. We all know you're fat. 
You're fat and you're lazy. And I can tell you why you're fat. You're stuffing your face with cheese curls all day. You're fat, you're lazy, and I think you're a first-class loser. And it almost sickens me to have to give you a physical exam. Now, what kind of response would that have been? That would have been condemnation, right? Let me ask you, how do you think I would have responded to that? Had my doctor said that, she could have been right. She could have won the argument, and we all love to win arguments. She could have put me in my place. She could have told it like it was. But you know what? If she had a con condemning spirit, and if those had been her choice of words, that would have been the last thing she ever said to me. Because I never would have set foot back in her office. And you know that's true. And I would have told anybody who asked my opinion, I would not go to that doctor. Don't like her. Or, she could have said, yeah, you got some things going on in your body, all right. Um, some pretty bad things. We found something on your x-ray. By the way, have you noticed when they say they found something on your x-ray, it's never anything good? <laughs> never said we found two tickets to the Rays game on your x-ray. <laughs> we found something on your x-ray, and your cholesterol is really high, and your arteries are hardening, and it looks like your heart's not going to hold out too much longer, but... I don't know. You know, you're only human, right? I mean, you should have seen the last guy that was in here. He was a lot worse than you, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. You know, pick up a complimentary pack of cigarettes on your way out the door. <laughs> I'll see you in 10 years. What kind of response would that have been? That would have been indifference. And how would I have responded to indifference? Hey, if something's going on in my body, I'd kind of like to know. If there's a problem, I sort of want to know what it is. If I need to do something, I'm paying you money to tell me what to do. No, I want you to care. I'm, I'm, I'm asking for some guidance from you. But I think I had a pretty good doctor. Here's what she said to me. She said, yeah, you know, as we get older, our, our bodies just need a little more maintenance. And when you hit 50, there's a lot of things that we kind of need to stay on top of. And, you know, she shared some information. She said, you know, one of the most healthy things you can do is, is stay in a healthy uh, weight range. And, uh, you know, it's not a, a huge thing for you, but just a few little lifestyle changes would really help you. You need to cut out some of the greasy foods and, and need a few more vegetables and, and fruits. And, you know, keep exercising. Don't overdo it. But... You know, keep exercising, get plenty of rest. If, you know, something comes up that you kind of have questions about, give me a call. I'll see you in six months. That was her response. Now, she wasn't condemning, and she wasn't indifferent. She was being an advocate. She said, I am here to help you succeed. I want you to be successful. I want you to be healthy. And I want, I'm going to help you do that. And there's a few changes that if you made these changes, you'd be more successful, you'd, you'd feel better, you'd, you'd be healthier. You know, that's how Jesus dealt with people. Very few times was Jesus just outright condemning. He certainly wasn't indifferent. But Jesus is an advocate. Jesus taught to transform lives. He's trying to change lives. Maybe this story will sound familiar to you. There's a certain rabbi who teaching at the 
temple one morning. And right in the middle of his lesson, a crowd brought uh, a woman who was caught in adultery. Kind of brought her before this rabbi. Now that woman lived in a very different culture than we do. That woman lived in a culture where someone caught in adultery, the law said that they could be put to death. So this woman's brought before the rabbi, whose fame is growing. This was a man who not only claimed to speak for God, he claimed to be God. And the accusers challenged the rabbi. And they say, our law says that we can put this woman to death. What do you say? And of course, this woman is seeking, sinking deeper and deeper into despair. She was an adulteress. She was caught in the bed of a man she wasn't married to. She was carrying a great deal of shame and guilt. She'd ruined her family and a second family for that matter. The guilt, the, the fear would have been crippling. And the rabbi said, you're right. The law does say that. But there's a catch. Only someone who is truly righteous can carry out that sentence. So, if any of you have never sinned, Go ahead and put her to death. And her accusers began to leave one by one. And the only two people really left are this woman and the rabbi. This woman doesn't even look up. Now, shame has a way of doing that. And then, kind of risking shame to himself, the rabbi said, Where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Master. And then the woman, perhaps anticipating a word of condemnation from the rabbi, hears instead, neither do I. Neither do I. Now, I want you to think for just a minute about the emotions that are going through that woman's mind in that moment. And I want you to think for a minute about the heart of that rabbi in that moment. Of course, you know it's Jesus, John chapter 8. Loving, gracious, compassionate Jesus. But his compassion doesn't stop there because love never leaves us where it finds us. Jesus gives this woman an opportunity of a brand new life. He, he tried to give her a brand new focus. Go on your way. And from now on, don't sin. Go on your way, and from now on, don't sin. I don't want you to return to that old life. I'm giving you the opportunity of a new life, and a new focus, and a new existence. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to be your advocate. I'm here to offer you something that really only Jesus can offer. Now, we are, we're not better than the people that live around us. And we're not smarter than the people around us. We're certainly not morally superior to the people around us. As Christians, we're just forgiven. We have just chosen to partner with a compassionate, gracious advocate who is offering us the life that only He can offer. Offering us the abundant life that He provides. You know, to people outside the kingdom, we, Christians, we have an image problem. And you know that's true. I saw a recent survey from the Barna Institute, um, just, it's about two years old now, 
and it said that 87% of young people ages 18 to 35 who claim no church affiliation, so in other words, young people who say, I don't go to church anywhere, 87% said that the word judgmental accurately describes Christians. Nine out of ten people said judgmental is a word that accurately describes Christians. The cartoon family, The Simpsons, have living next door to them a couple named uh, Maud and Ned Flanders, and they are the stereotypical Christians. And in one particular episode, Maud tells everyone she's going away for a week of Bible camp so she can learn to be more judgmental. You know, we kind of chuckle at that. It's kind of funny, but then it's pretty sad because the truth is that's the way a lot of people view us. Now, you and I both know that's not an accurate assessment of Christianity. And for the most part, I think people that say those things really don't know what they're talking about or else it's some kind of a defense mechanism to justify a lifestyle or some, some things that they're doing. But I also know that there are times when that's a pretty accurate description of us. So Jesus uses an analogy that would be funny if it weren't so tragic. He said, you are so worried about this tiny, tiny problem that your neighbor has, this tiny speck in his eye, and you've got this huge issue in your own life. You've got this, this plank in your own eye. Take care of yourself. Then you can help someone else. Look back at our anchor text. Uh, just verse 2 of chapter 7. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is telling us, there is a judge. And guess what? It's not you. You're not the judge. You're not the judge for one simple reason, because God's still in control. You're not the judge because God is still on the throne. And no one is going to get away with anything. God will address every sin, every wrong, every evil deed. There will be no innocent victims. God is going to one day settle accounts. There will be a payday someday. Which means, of course, you and I will be judged as well. Only God gets to deal with the sins of the world. And here's the great news. He already has. He's already dealt with sin. Now, how did God deal with sin? How did He deal with my sin? How did He deal with your sin? Well, He could have been um, very angry and violent could have come with a sword and a spear, condemning. I guess he could have been indifferent, just allow us to die in our sin. But what did he do? He sent an advocate. He sent his son. He sent his son to pay the price that we couldn't pay. He sent his son to, to die on a cross. On a Roman cross, Jesus declared it's finished. The price for sin has been paid. And because of the cross, Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 8, there's now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we want to say, yeah, but how about... No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I think too many Christians try and practice their faith faith without ever really embracing Jesus and the power of the cross. Too many Christians are so consumed with with other things, different things, and we allow our focus to somehow drift from Jesus. And we allow our thoughts and our minds and our, and our, 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 our focus to get away from the cross. No wonder the world sees us as judgmental. We lose sight of the fact that because of Jesus, because of the cross, every life is redeemable. Because of the cross, every person matters. Because of the cross, God's not going to write anybody off. And God's not going to give up on anyone. And if we could ever tap into the power of that realization, oh boy, watch out. If we could ever see people the way Jesus sees people. Sadly for some, church has been, and maybe is, a hurtful place. And I don't care what some self-righteous person might have said to you in ignorance of the cross, but only God is righteous. So only God's voice counts. And God's word at the cross was, it's finished. The price for sin has been paid. Grace through Jesus. His word at the cross is, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus wants the church to be a a no-condemnation place. He wants this to be a safe place. A place where He is taken very, very seriously. A place where our focus and our honor and our worship is on Jesus. A place where we gather at the foot of the cross. A place where we see people the way Jesus sees people. Desperately in need of an advocate. Desperately in need of a Savior. And if we started treating other people that way, if we started focusing on introducing people to Jesus, not a formula, not a structure, not a place, introducing people to Jesus, helping people to fall more and more in love with Jesus speaks so much more loudly and so much more powerfully than any word of condemnation that we might be able to speak. So this morning, are you in Christ Jesus? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the Lord of your life. Is He the reason you get up in the morning? Is He the focus of your day? Is He the the, the one that sustains you and drives you and motivates you? Every minute, every day. As a family, we're going to have a song that's been chosen, a song of encouragement. 
Now maybe today's the day that you're ready to put Christ on in baptism. Be baptized into Christ. You made the decision, I'm going to go and I'm going to sin no more. And I'm going to go public with the fact that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to obey Jesus. Be buried in baptism. Maybe you just need the prayers of people who love you. You know what, I need to, I need to change my focus. I've been allowing my heart to, to be hardened by a lot of things that the world's throwing at me and I just I need to get back to Jesus. If we can help you some way as a family minister to you or with you, come to the front and meet us. Let's stand and sing.